we are right and everyone else is wrong. Yeah. Like, and I see that from where I come from, even to the point where it's the people, like there will be people groups who are so sure that they're right and everyone else is wrong, that every characteristic about other people that is not them is somehow wrong. So if you're poor, other people are wrong for being rich. Mm. Like, and if you, can, if you don't have technology, other people are wrong for having technology. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like there's two paths that both sides take. Like yeah. individuals have taken this, it's either, like you said, hero or agility stuff. And with collectivists, it's either the yeah. same group heroism, like we are going to change the world, or we don't need to because everyone else is wrong and we figured it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting to think about how that, yeah, how you can see the same kind of patterns working themselves out in different ways. Um, uh, in, in that way. And it, yeah, I mean, and so some of that even makes me wonder if like part, how those mix, like say in, in current American culture even, where you have more and more people gravitating to identity groups, right. where and it's like, sure. and that's where the it's like, I this is in the parts of American culture that are collectivist, like any group, even in the individualistic culture, yeah. any group I feel like will have that same mentality. Yeah. Or as a group, you'll think either we're going to change the world. I mean, we do that as Christians, we do that as Catholic College, we do that as, like, you know, we're going to be the ones to change everything, or we don't need to because it's their loss. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Josh and Jerry. Uh, so related to the suffering is kind of how can you not have compassion when you see all the stuff that's going on in the world? Yeah. So it feels wrong to say, uh, I mean, the, there's an impulse to say that statement feels wrong because aren't we supposed to have compassion? How could you not when you see all the stuff that's going on? Right. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy. Um, I think it's kind of like repeating what Michael was saying, but I feel like it's so much to the point where we've gotten these identity groups. Like Michael was saying, I think everything about the other person is so wrong. Yeah. Like, if you look at, like, um, even if, like, like, the whole Democrat Republican side is so blatant, whereas, like, Republicans, like, Republicans are always right, therefore, everything Democrats do is wrong. And then, like, Democrats are always so everything Republicans do is wrong. So, like, it's gotten to the point where one side or the other could be doing something blatantly wrong. Um, I'm not trying to do political or punny, but, like, like, just, like, blatantly wrong. And then, like, just because they're on your side, you're going to defend them because they have the title Republican or Democrat. But, yeah. Yeah. And, like, it's, yeah, like, it's very much it's a like nationalism. Yeah. But to like not to like your own little right. nation that you belong yeah. to within a nation. Yeah. Yeah, it's more like the post the postmodern tribalism in that yeah. sense, kind of moving, yes. moving that direction. Yeah. I mean part of when I think about all this, so here's kind of what I wonder when we when we think about this. Um, if there's partly if there's partly a shift in how we think about suffering uh, or even the the problem of evil. Uh, and so when we think about suffering, why is there suffering? How do you respond to suffering? Um, it's at least worth noting that for, um, actually for a lot of Christian history, uh, that it was understood that partly, part of the reality of suffering and evil is that it's something that we can't explain, right? That doesn't, there's not a kind of rational explanation for it but that in a lot of mysterious ways, uh, God 
oftentimes uses suffering or evil to bring about something, uh, whether in individuals or in the broader world. And so if I, you know, so if I experience suffering, part of that process is that it's not that the suffering is itself good, but it is a process of refining, of, of purifying, uh, and so that that suffering is in one sense something bad, but in another sense it's something that actually accomplishes something in part of this mysterious divine providential plan. But here, here's what I think about. I'm not sure we believe that anymore. Right? Actually, I'm pretty sure we don't believe that anymore. Uh, that if you look at what characterizes the modern world, partly it does revolve around this problem of suffering uh, because for modern people especially, this idea that, that suffering might be mysteriously put to use by God in his providential purposes essentially gets wiped off the map, especially when instead of the, the Christian God, you start thinking about a more deistic God, a God who builds the world and sets it running and everything's supposed to work. And you can see that the world is designed, even you might hear Christians make this argument, the world is clearly designed, but then this seems to have a little bit of a flaw, which is that there's a lot of suffering, physical suffering and, and otherwise. Um, and so for a while, people try to kind of wrestle with this but I think part of what you have in the modern world is the belief, ultimately, uh, that all suffering can and should be eliminated, eradicated, or at least brought down to the lowest possible level by any means possible. Is that fair? I mean, when you think about the reality of the world around us, isn't it true that we should be sort of exerting all of our forces, mental forces, emotional forces, spiritual forces, to reducing pain and suffering of, of, of any kind. And that really, that, that in a lot of ways, it is on us uh, to, to do that. I think one, one way people get at this in a, in a kind of well-meaning way is to say, well, we are the hands and feet of God. Um, and so... Uh, what's, what's God's intent? I just heard this song on the Christian radio the other day, which I listen to now more because my kids demand it. Like, ah, oh, um, right? Uh, dang. They're like, we must listen to WCSG. Like, oh. Here's Bob, although they do like Bob Dylan's Hurricane song. It's like, it's like here we go. Let, let's listen to some Bob Dylan, some good, some good music. Which also, the more I listen to Bob Dylan, the more I wonder, like, I mean, if, if I just listen to Bob Dylan with my kids, they're actually going to get a pretty, they're at least going to get the beginnings of, like, the history of the civil rights movement just through Bob Dylan songs. And then I was like, well, who's making music today that like tells these stories? And I was like, yeah, I mean, more, right? That's it's going to be more. I'll give that a listen, I guess. Um, but so, so here's the, I'm just, so I'm hypothesizing, right? It's our job to lessen evil. And here's maybe why we get so angry at the other groups. Because, because Republicans think we've got the path to lessen evil, right? Smaller government, bigger business. It's going to improve the economy. Things are going to go better for people. It's going to lessen the amount of evils and suffering in the world. Democrats think they have the answer. You know, the more that we emphasize uh, human rights, the more that we emphasize 
justice, social justice across the board and, and actually advocate for maybe a larger government to regulate things better, that's going to eliminate suffering. So it turns out that the problem of evil is not just the problem of evil, it's actually the problem of those other people in the world who are mistaken and not going along with my plan to eliminate evil. Uh, and so the, 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 so in a lot of ways, what happens is we almost literally end up literally demonizing. Right? Because it's our job to fix the world, if I understand how to fix the world and you're getting in the way of that, what are you? Right? You're a modern-day Satan. Right? You're a problem. You're, you're, yeah, in fact, you're probably more of a problem than the evil and suffering. Um, and so, again, I, I th everything that people have mentioned here, I think, is, is helpful in putting this together. But I think it's, this is just what I keep coming back to, is like, why does it just feel so wrong? Like, there's this like, deep-seated thing in me that pushes actually against kind of what Nugent is saying. And I'm trying to understand like, what, that, what that is. And why I think all of us are wired to be kind of like that does not, it does not, it doesn't sit well. It doesn't like, it's not something that initially I was like, oh yeah, I really see the truth of that. In fact, it's almost the opposite um, when I hear that. I don't know. So just we we can keep wrestling with this. But any other thoughts or comments on this before we move on? Yeah, Josh. I mean, in a way, it might even be kind of you know God's own breaking of His heart over how the world is because of human sin and, and the like, and are wanting to do something about that because we can't, we have a very hard time processing the brokenness. And um, I'm not saying God has a hard time processing brokenness, but he is broken over what is, over what, what's going on. So I think that part of that also feeds into our own feelings about it too, as we look at brokenness. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I mean, it's just striking to me, isn't it, that when Jesus came, he did not come saying, I will end all your suffering. He, in fact, inhabited people's suffering with them rather than saying, I'm the Messiah and I'm here, so all suffering will now cease. Actually, that sounds more like the voice of the tempter Right? Who says, you don't, have to, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to really enter into this. And so, I mean, I wrestle with this even myself. Because you know, when I think about, I would much rather try to end poverty instead of entering into poverty. Right? Even though Jesus says, like, blessed are the poor. And we're like, we're going to fix it so there are no more poor. Uh, right? And when I think about I mean, questions of, 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 you know, everybody... We, policy solutions are good, but we oftentimes want to fix things rather than first uh, entering entering into it. And it's just a very it's a very different posture. It's one that I don't like as much because I'm all about fixing things. I would much rather do that than suffer. Yeah. Well, I think it's an unrealistic expectation that we will fix the world. So sure. So like we can't end poverty. Yeah. I think a good goal is reducing poverty and helping yeah. people who are in poverty. So I would say that's a good goal. But yeah. I think if our goal is to end poverty, like that's just unrealistic. Yeah. Let's just like, be realistic here and work with what we have. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that... Because I think that's where I'm, like, 
Yeah. Our goal shouldn't be to fix the world. Our goal right. should, I, part of our goal should be to help make right. the world a better place. Yeah. But like, we can't get so hyper fixated on fixing the issues because we can't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and right. And yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, a good point. And, and that, I think, is what if we've got this sense of the already and the not yet, this tension of we're living from the reality of Christ's victory, but things are not yet fully fulfilled. Uh, that allows us to live in that tension in a way that I'm not sure you can if you're sort of a purely kind of non-religious person who's committed to end ending suffering. Right, because at the end of the day, it's not on me, uh, but it's it's on it's on God. We saw on the first slide. All right, so the first slide. Um, so part of what we're thinking about here, it's all right. We're trying to think deep thoughts, not get through an outline. Um, that's it's more important. That's right. So part of what part of what we're wrestling with, and what we want to unpack today a little bit is what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God, and to, to think about this kingdom language, and to think about. Uh, especially to go back to scripture, one of the things that I, I think um, I both love and hate about Nugent is that he's like so grounded in the Bible. Like there's so much Bible stuff. Like, dang, I want to argue with this, but this is like in the Bible. So uh, <laughs> right, makes it a little bit harder to do, to do that. Um, and so a couple things I just want to note when we think about God's formation uh, of a people, when we ask what's the nature and mission of, of God's people in the Old Testament. You know, he points back to Genesis 12 and the call, of, the call of Abraham, points to Exodus 19 and God setting the people of Israel free. In both situations, what God is doing is actually pulling his people away from worldly positions of power and influence. So taking Abraham out of, uh, uh, out of Babylon, essentially, uh, taking God's people out of Egypt, uh, and he is giving them this, this charter that they are called to live in this land, to ex experience God's blessing, to live out God's ways uh, in God's world. Uh, and in doing that, uh, in Exodus 19, it refers to them as a holy or a set-apart nation or a holy or set-apart people uh, and as a kingdom of priests. Uh, and so part of what they are called to do is to live this way of life that, uh, especially I think this is where it's important for good individualist Christians to note, uh, that this is a corporate way of life. It is not an individual way of life. That there's something about how they live and interact with each other that's actually crucial to what God wants to do and what God wants to accomplish. It's not just individuals who are in relationship with him. Um, I think about, you know, today if you said something like, there is no salvation outside the church, most people are like, what? like, what are you talking about? Like, of course there is. Like, I'm saved by Jesus. Um, but what you see, I think the point that that's trying to get across is, when God's redemption or salvation comes, you are part of a people, and a people who are called to live differently uh, in, in this way. And that as this, so they're set apart, they're different, but when Scripture talks about them as a kingdom of priests, uh, that the point here is that they are, that think about what a priest is. A priest is a mediator or a go-between uh, between God and the people. And so part of what God is saying here is that in setting apart Israel, uh, that Israel is to be this go-between uh, between God and the rest of the world. There's something significant 
uh, about their way of life together that, that all of them are this kingdom of priests. Not just the Levites, not just a select group, but all of them in their way of life together. They're set apart to live out God's ways in the world. Um, and part of Nugent's point is uh, that the, the role of Torah in this, if you read uh, the Torah, this is God's way of life for them. It's not just that God is saying, if you do these things, then I will bless you. But God as creator is saying, here's how I've created you to be. Here's how I've created you to operate. And so when you live in line with how I have created you, uh, that brings with it this, this inherent or this intrinsic blessing. Uh, and so you know, following the Torah is what brings life. Uh, so that as Israel embodies the Torah, people are going to look at that. Gentiles are going to look at that and they're going to be drawn to that because they, they see that there's something to that. They see that there's power um, and, and truth that they can't find anywhere else. Now, part of Nugent's point in saying all this is to be as clear as possible about the nature and mission of God's people in the Old Testament. What he emphasizes uh, in saying this is God's people are called to live this set-apart way of life, but what the Torah does not do is say, now here's how you go out and make sure that the Egyptians do this. Here's how you make sure that these other people groups follow this. Here, here are the instructions for implementing this in Babylon. Rather, he says, you live out this way of life. Nations are going to see, and they're going to be drawn to that. Uh, and that is the avenue through which God will work. Uh, so, I forgot, I brought a bunch of other books I was going to show you guys. Good, good books to read over the Christmas break if you're interested in all this stuff we're talking about. On page, um, page 54, they're not my books. Um, <laughs> On page, <laughs> why you gotta why you gotta be so harsh, man? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, all right, oh, thanks. Um, that's good. Uh, so five, so so listen to this. I'll, I'll read these. This is from page uh, fifty-four. So you don't have to write all these down. You can go check them if you want to see them in detail. But just listen to the order. And Nugent says the order here is crucial. First, God takes his people away from the nations and makes them his own nation. You see that in Abraham. You see that in the, the Exodus passage. Second, God's people order their lives according to God's instructions. Third, if they, if they do this, God's people will thrive due to the superior way of life that he gives them and the blessings he pours upon them. Fourth, the nations, the Gentiles, notice and are impressed, having never before seen such a life. And by the way, this is also why, you know, when you read the Old Testament, especially when you read the Psalms, the Psalms are, are ecstatic about the fact that God has revealed his Torah to his people. Right? Because God has actually shown, all these Gentiles are walking in darkness, and God has revealed his light so that his people can live out this way of life. So... Number four, the nations notice and they're impressed having never before seen such a life. And then fifth, the nations decide on their own to come to where God is blessing his people in order to learn this way of life uh, from him. And so you see this in passages like Isaiah 2 where there's this prophetic vision that, you know, if God's people will do this, what's going to happen? Nations are going to stream to Jerusalem. They're going to stream to the temple. Why? To learn how to follow God themselves. 
uh, and then take that back with them uh, to, to the places where they're from. So it's not that Israel sort of fixes the world by colonizing other nations, by taking over more and more territory, imposing this way of life, but rather, this gets back to the, to be a city on a hill that people are drawn to and say, I want to know about the source of that light so that then they can take that with them. Now, in following this up then, Nugent says, it's important to know what God's people do not do. They do not come up with their own plan for making the world better. They do not engineer their own path to success. They do not devise a marketing strategy and promote it among the nations. Uh, they simply live how God calls them to live. They don't try to make the world a better place, the broader world. They humbly accept that God is making them into a better place. Now, what I want to emphasize there is, when we think about how God is doing that, making them a better place, it is in many very this-worldly ways. So you read the Torah, it's very concerned with the details, the ins and outs of daily life, of economics, of how you're going to set up your land, of how you're going to, be, how you're going to do economic justice, and what that's going to look like. Uh, and so that all, I want to be really clear that the way of life is a very this-worldly life. It's not this heaven-centered focus that you know, God's people are just going to kind of pray and wait for Jesus to come back uh, or come the first time. Um, right? That's not what they're called to do. They're actually called to embody and inhabit this way of life uh, that, that looks different. But here's why I, I, think it's, I think it's significant, and maybe not now if you don't have these in front of you, but part of the reason we have to ask ourselves, like, is Nugent right about this and about how this is laid out in the Old Testament? Because if so then it has implications for how we think about ourselves as the people of God. Because his point is that what you see happen in the New Testament is, in a lot of ways, a restoration of this vision, of this path. Uh, it's not something new or different or other. It's that part of what the New Testament, part of what Jesus is doing, part of the work of the Spirit, what they're doing is restoring God's people so that they can actually function in this way to be a light to the nations, not to fix the nations, but to be a light to the nations. Yeah. Maybe I'm being a little ahead of myself, but I feel like this position is a really, really, really minority position. Uh, as I think about both what I've learned at Kuiper in classes uh, from authors that I've been taught under, you know, in, in some of the classes, as well as other things that we've been recommended to look at, resources and things like that, and even the, the culture that seems to be at Kuiper when it, when it comes to talking about how we relate to the world and things like that. This seems to be um, very much a minority position, and it seems to kind of fly in the face of a lot of the things that I've, you know, kind of learned here. and. Uh, you know, it, it's, it feels like I'm having a re-education re of what I've already been learning here. It's probably fair. Yeah. I, I mean, other, other, I mean, others experience that? I know that's usually experienced when we go through this book. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, I feel And so I don't think, um, again, I don't think it is a... Maybe it's a seismic difference. I think it's a difference that does make a difference. It makes a difference for how you're going to articulate these things. But I, part of what I would say is even for a lot of good Kuyperians, it's very easy to get caught up in this broader framework of what's our goal. Our goal is to make the world a better place. 
in our own power, and that is equated with sort of the coming kingdom of God in a, in a kind of overly simplistic way. So part of what I'm trying to do, hopefully, is not throw everything you've learned out. It's not what I'm going to advocate for. Um, but to think about how I think more nuance on this will actually give us greater clarity on our calling as Christians and our general calling in the broader culture. That's my hope anyway. But I apologize if it does feel like a little bit like we're floating. And you're like my head is spinning a little bit. It's upside down. What are we? Um, I like it. You'll get, <laughs> you'll get the chance. So no, this, is one of the, this is one of the questions that I actually ask on the final exam is for you to kind of talk through this in conversation with other parts of your education at Kuiper and just reflect on what is the, the process. That's one of the questions. It's a take home. Like, isn't it like the three question thing, like take home? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a few. I think what I say last time, it's like two or three. I think it's usually three It's more than questions. three. I'm only doing three. So. Okay. All right. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't know what you mean. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I may have been taking it differently then because I've kind of been absorbing the information as an opposition to these. Yeah. I, maybe that's why it hasn't been as conflicting as with even the things that I disagree with. I'm like, well, yeah, because I'm not supposed to. Like, <laughs> it's almost an immediate <laughs> rejection, which probably isn't smart. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't even think of that because the parts that are that, that make less sense to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's probably just something that we're supposed to, not something we're actually supposed to believe. It's probably yeah. something yeah. we're supposed to be looking over. Yeah. So that's weird that we received that in such a different yeah. way. Yeah, how, how it's going after this. And so part of what, and maybe I mentioned this in this class before, I should maybe, maybe I should give you guys, there's like four or five pages from a Jamie Smith book where he talks about how especially for Kuyperians, for neo-Calvinists, it's very, it's very easy to what he calls naturalize shalom. So we make shalom nothing more than a kind of this worldly, kind of achieving human good things, human flourishing. And his argument is like, that's not the biblical vision of shalom. The biblical vision of shalom is something more, something richer and deeper than just we're making, making a difference in a very this-worldly way. Yeah. I do want to clarify. I do like this restructuring that I'm receiving, but I just wanted to kind of get a sense of this, if, you know, what I'm feeling about this being kind of like more of a minority position, even in the institution where we're in right now, if that was more... Yeah, but I actually think I am, well, I am like. Right before we leave. So. <laughs> yeah. That's wrong because of this book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm 30 years old. I, I'm, I'm beyond that. that kind of <laughs> yeah. I just want to get through this. And I mean, I so I'm actually, liking, think, I'm liking this position. Very much right. I, I do think, yeah, you know, I think part of what Nugent says, I mean, so you took the mission of the church class that I taught last. Uh, year for the Master of Ministry course. Yes, and I'm uh, a little confused. Well, I, I think Nugent is actually, I think Tim Keller is probably the reformed thinker who's closest to Nugent, okay. actually, who that holds, who holds, uh, who recognizes the centrality of, of the church, but who also, and you'll see as we get to Nugent, he's going to talk a lot, actually, in the second half of the book about not only how, how do we function as the church, but what does this mean for our daily life, our jobs, our job choices, all those kinds of things that flow from our faith. So I think, so I'll be interested when we get to that part in the last, I know it's after Thanksgiving, but don't give up, keep reading. Um, that I, I think when you, I think when we get to the end, you'll start to see how some of this framework works out. 
But but I I would say as as like a theologian and somebody for whom language is really important that we're pretty loose on our language uh, in terms of thinking about language of kingdom and other things. So what I'm hearing is that as we get farther into the book, this sort of precedent that he's setting will make more sense in that context. Yeah. As opposed to just taking something so it's out of context. Yeah. And being. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. This isn't really a new idea. It's just a new phrasing that once we fit into the bigger context will make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. That I th- that I hope, especially by the time we get to in into the last couple sections where he does talk about what does this mean practically for us as the church? What does it mean practically for us in our everyday lives and our broader culture? Um, yeah, I think some of what he says there still is going to be challenging and a pushback, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's going to mean necessarily that you're going to feel like I have to rethink it my whole life, right? <laughs> or everything I've been doing at Kuiper has been inv- just been invalidated. Um, but again, part of what I think it shows is that... Um, I, th- I think we need a better framework. Screw the institution. We need a- <laughs> yeah. And so I do think, although it is fair, and I push for this, I can, I can only do so much, I'm only one faculty member, but I've said, I think we need to find a way to alert people to some of this earlier on or in different ways throughout the curriculum to make sure we're all, some of us are not saying the same thing, and some of us know that. <laughs> some professors like to push Bible department professors' buttons by saying things that they know are clearly not exactly biblically accurate. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, it's not Andrew. Um, it's not Andrew. It's not Andrew. So, it's not entirely true. It's not entirely true. Um, uh, you know, I'm pr- everything. Yes, theology and philosophy. Um, all right, so I'm, I, this is a sidebar, so I'm going to skip over that. Although it does have a really funny video. Skip Colbert. It's not. Well, it's just. A, it's just a quote. It's just a quote. Okay, so I'll say this is what I'll say in three minutes. Although there is a really funny video that I'm tempted to show. All right, uh, you got you guys. You've earned it. Um, <laughs> so here's here's the point. Um, a lot of times, and I think maybe this is more from more uh, progressive leaning Christians, but I, I hear it on both sides. What is the role of a prophet? A lot of times you hear uh, this person is really prophetic, right? They're they're a prophetic voice in American politics. Part of Nugent's point, and this is just a sidebar, it's not a main point, but I think it's just an illustration. His point here is that in Israel, the prophet's role is actually to speak to the people of God, not typically to speak to the Gentile nations. Uh, Or if they do, there are a few examples, like Jonah, who goes and gives very minimal, he basically says repent, and people repent. Um, But the vast majority, even when the prophets are talking about Babylon or uh, other nations, their audience is Israel. And so his point here is, you know, when we say that somebody's a prophetic voice in American politics, it almost sounds like we've confused, it's almost like we're saying America is the church. Right? And so, so the point is not to say, the point is not to like deride somebody who is a powerful voice in the broader uh, political landscape, but just to say, 
even the way we use this language shows that people probably on both the right and the left end up thinking about Jesus or thinking about what it means to be prophetic um, through this lens that is confused about the difference between the church and the world, the difference between the people of God and, and the broader culture. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so whether it's people on the right trying to instill kind of a Christian vision of America or people on the left trying to instill a progressive Christian vision of America, um, th this is the danger. So somebody like Colbert, I think he's trying to be prophetic here. If this is going to be a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor, either we have to pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are, we've got to acknowledge that he commanded us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition, then admit that we just don't want to do it. Um, I think, I, yeah, I get what he's saying there, but I think his point is partly that we should have uh, more governmental focus on, on doing that. And I'm not necessarily sure that when Jesus said, love the poor and serve the needy, at least, maybe I'm off here, but I don't think his point was that he was speaking primarily to the federal government <laughs> and it, of, any, of any country. Uh, right? Uh, and so a lot of that, and so this is what we do through the lens. I mean, if you watch, Christians do this all the time. This is where Christians will criticize other Christians. Like, well, Jesus said to love the poor, so why aren't you for this? It's like, again, we're, we're thinking of what Jesus says and we're reading it through this lens as though Jesus is speaking to the country, the nation as a whole, rather than speaking to his particular people. So all that being said, I think, yes, it's, you know, it's, it's probably the role of the government to some degree. But how you're going to debate that or how you're going to think about it, it's, it's just too simplistic to say this is what Jesus said and that's what we should conclude. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, I kind of hate it when people say, like, oh, Jesus was, like, a communist. And Jesus wanted the government to take care of all the poor people. Yeah. Because Jesus told the churches to take care of their poor. He didn't tell the government to mandate taking care of the poor. Yeah. So that people just take Jesus out of context and use him to Yeah. Yeah. I was just basically going to say everything you just said. But, um, 
sounds really good. But I think, uh, I think he's right. I think he's right a lot. Like when he says like the word help, I think that's where the huge dividing line is, and that's where like, people are like Republicans hate the poor or whatever. Um, I don't think anyone in the right mind would ever be like, no, I don't. I like people who are in need don't need help. I'm not going to help them. They shouldn't. They shouldn't be helped. Um, I think the biggest thing is that uh, it's the word help itself is like where people are arguing like over the definition of like yeah. what do we do to help? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do we help before? And that's what I think the big argument. Yeah. Is what we should do and what works and what's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because even when you, I agree with what you said, because at first I didn't when you said that no one would say that the poor don't need help. And the thing is, I actually believe that because even people who say you have to let them save themselves, like even people say they just need to work harder, they genuinely still think they're helping. Yeah. They think in me not doing anything yes. for you, I'm helping you be strong. Right. Right. So everybody thinks that the, everybody yeah. actually does want to help. It's just that's the part we none of us can agree yeah. on. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Which is why a thesis statement that says Christians should help the poor would not be a good thesis statement. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody would agree with it. The question is, how? That's where, that's where the argument is. Yeah, yeah. In, in like a policy sense, Republican policy, we're in policy class. Republican policy tends to have, have restrictions where the poor need to prove or earn help. And democratic policy tends to be more unrestricted. Right. And that's, yeah, and that's the two different views, is that people need to show that they should be helped and do some sort of work, whereas everyone should receive help. Yeah. Like charity? Yeah, and both sides think the other yeah. side's wrong. Yeah. But both yeah. sides think yeah. that they're doing what's best to help. Everybody's right. Yeah, because everybody's right. Right. Um, yeah, so, so it sounds like Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> sounds like... All right, I guess we can watch. So this is this is a short video. Sorry, I'll show the video and then we'll. I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm not gonna comment on. So uh, the video was circulating a couple years ago, and it is. So it is. It is political. So I'm sorry if it offends. I'm sorry if so. The uh, the video is called. It's called GOP Jesus. So it may offend you if you're a Republican, but. Uh, I'm showing the video as uh, a mistake that more progressive people make by making this. So the, the whole video itself, I think, also comes out of a mistaken view of what Jesus is or isn't saying. Um, so I, I think it's I, maybe because I'm an independent. I think it's all kind of funny. But um. truly, I say unto you, whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name. Might be letting in a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get her to a detention center. Figure out what's going on. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And behold, now I'm all lazy and entitled. You shouldn't have done that. <laughs> As you suspect they might want to do unto you. What is a man profited if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? A lot. He has profited a lot. One soul for the whole world, that is an amazing deal. Why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye but ignore the plank in your own? Because of... 
Rand Paul, um, was that, yeah, so anyway, yeah, talking about real people, and uh, it was just striking when he, I think it was at the Republic. it was a Republican debate, I can't remember if it was 2012, maybe it was 2008, anyway, so they, they were talking about like war, and, you know, policy on war, and, and he said, uh, you know, do unto your neighbors, you would have them do unto you, and got booed at a... At a at the actual debate by the by the Republican audience, so because um, he's yeah he's he's much more he's more libertarian leaning. So so the point of this, right? Again, part of the point of this video is I recognize some of the critiques they're making, but I think the video itself is rooted in the same mistake, which is that Jesus was sort of in his role as prophet. He was giving policy or commands or guidance for how the nation as a whole is supposed to run, um, rather than being focused on something else. And I think this is, again, part of what tears Christians further apart when we buy into this us versus them mentality and we end up baptizing the gospel either uh, in a kind of Republican or a Democratic fashion. Uh, so... How do we then think about Jesus and the kingdom? Um, on page 60, uh, Nugent lists a bunch of different terms, 
And I was even just thinking, you know, it might be helpful. He says, here, here are different terms that the Bible uses to talk about what's happening when Jesus comes. Because the kingdom is one of the main ways that Scripture talks about uh, what is going on in the life and ministry and person of Jesus. Uh, it's also, I always like, I can't remember which church father it is now, but referred to Jesus as Jesus is the kingdom in itself. That Jesus himself is the presence of the kingdom. Uh, I think that's a very important and, and powerful point to remember. Uh, but he says, look, if you, if you go through scripture, there are a bunch of different words used to describe what's happening now. W words that are, words like salvation, redemption, restoration, reconciliation, renewal, fulfillment. But then there are other words. He goes on. Fullness of time. This is a new era. It's a new creation. A new age, new life, or eternal life, especially in John. Uh, the end of ages, the end of days, the day of the Lord, the year of the Lord, times of refreshing uh, in kingdom of heaven. And so, I mean, even as I was reading those, uh, I thought, well, that could be an interesting test because I think what often happens is sometimes we fixate on just one of those terms or maybe just a few of those terms. So I know... Like I grew up in circles where people used the term salvation a lot. What that meant by salvation was usually make sure that you have given your life to Jesus, that you've prayed a prayer asking for forgiveness, that you have eternal life in heaven. And so salvation, eternal life get heard one way. In my church circles anyway, we never use language really of kingdom of God or restoration or renewal. And so I think in doing that, we often kind of get a slice, we get a piece of, the, uh, of what Scripture means by the kingdom of God, but we don't get the whole picture. And I wonder if the same thing happens when we do maybe fixate on terms like just redemption or restoration apart from terms like eternal life or the year of the Lord or new creation. Because I think if I use terms like that, I'm probably less likely to think about it as just something that I achieve or that I bring about uh, like that through my work uh, I'm, I'm maybe accomplishing this or it's all on me to do this and so I, I think it is important if you go back and look at these terms to really say like a, a biblical view of what's happening in Jesus has to sort of use all these terms and utilize the, the, the breadth of what's being said uh, when scripture talks this way I also think it's important um, I said this a little bit last time do not pit the kingdom against the church. That when we think about what is, what is the kingdom, uh, this is the reality that God is proclaimed king, that Jesus is proclaimed Lord and king. And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit confusing if, if people say, this is how sometimes it functions, here's the church, uh, kingdom is really what's going on outside the church, uh, but kingdom has to do with who is king. It has to do with proclamation of who the king really is. And so to say that the kingdom is coming where there is no proclamation of the king, where there is no celebration of the king, where there's no worship of the king, uh, I think uh, is just, it's off. It's, a bit, it's misleading uh, that we recognize, in fact, that the kingdom is centered in the church, this place where, again, a central part of the church's work is to worship the king. 
uh, is to lift up the king. Uh, and, and so in that sense, the way that Nugent puts it, is the local body of believers is God's kingdom work. We don't do that work. Rather, we are that work. That this is the work that, that God through his spirit is accomplishing in us in creating us that we are his kingdom. Yeah? You, you kind of answered it. It was basically, so the church is the kingdom of God. A full answer would be really complicated, but I think the, the way that I would put it is that uh, the kingdom is centered in the church. Is how I would say it right now. There's a lot of fun theological uh, debates about exactly how to articulate this, um, and I and I think especially, uh, especially when we think about. And so again, here now here's the danger: uh, when you hear church, we might think of a building that we're at once a week. Like so, God's kingdom is present on Sunday mornings, you know, for an hour and a half in this specific place. But this is where we have to recognize that the church is both the body of believers and it's, it's us as his temple individually as we go about our lives. So, so maybe a better way to put it is to think about every kingdom has a king, every kingdom has subjects. Who are the subjects of Christ's kingdom? Well, we are. Right? And so wherever you are, Christ's kingdom is. Uh, and so it's not a simple, so my worry here again is we're going to think spatially or just organizationally, like the space of the church building or the organization of the church, or maybe even the people who just, just the people who work at, for the church is the church, rather than recognizing that the kingdom is God's people. Just like here, you've got this holy nation, this kingdom of priests, the people of God. Yeah. So that, that was more my question. By the church, I mean God's people. God's people is the kingdom. Yeah. Okay. Because that does a lot in clarifying a lot of things when it comes to talking about, because I can see how, even just during this year, I've been talking about the kingdom in this kind of ethereal kind of way, where it's kind of like, well, what do I really mean when I'm saying the kingdom? Yeah. And this really helps clarify things. Yeah. Even with understanding that I had before about the kingdom, because I used to see kind of our position in the world as basically like, uh, you know, like the Dunedin in Lord of the Rings, where they were in a small minority of the true royal people, but who were not in power at the time. Yeah. That was my understanding. Yeah. 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 So if we say, Father, let your kingdom come. Yeah. Uh, are we talking, is that like end time language, or is that like, your reign on earth, or is that the body of believers the kingdom, or all of it? Yes, I think <laughs> so. So here's so we use that word for right. so many different things. Yeah, yeah. And so I think so. A couple things that I think that's a it's a great point of clarification, and I think Nugent does touch on that uh, a little bit when we say your kingdom come. A couple things, especially in the Lord's Prayer, this is connected to the hallowing of God's name, the sanctifying of God's name. So this is crucial in the Old Testament. I mean, this is why this is so bad, is not only does Israel fail in their mission, but they end up dragging God's name through the mud. And so God says, when I act to restore your purpose and mission, this is going to result in people actually knowing that I am the one true God and my name being hallowed. And so I think that's important to see, even in the Lord's Prayer, 
that when God's kingdom truly comes, people know the one true God. His name is hallowed and sanctified. So it's not just that um, we accomplish things that are kind of good on a, this, this level, right, of human flourishing, good things, but that it's actually through that 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 becomes a signpost that points to God. Uh, and so I think in that sense, part of what is, is being prayed for there is, like you said, it's, it's that it, the kingdom comes in us individually, that it comes in us corporately, and that we are looking for this time when, thing, when everything is set right. And so I think there are those levels to it. I, I think what I think it doesn't mean, maybe this is a transition here, um, Nugent points out the Bible never talks about God's rule as creator, that, that he creates the world, he oversees it, he upholds it, he upholds all, all things. It's true that God rules over creation as creator, but that is typically not what's meant in the New Testament when it talks about the kingdom of God. You're actually talking about the redemptive reign that comes through the spirit who makes us alive in Christ and points us to who God uh, really is. And so, again, I, this is where I would say, um, when we think about all the things that God accomplishes through that and the ways that he used many non-Christians to accomplish that, it's good. The, the, those things are good. It has to happen for creation to be upheld. But it's, it's not the same thing as bringing about this kingdom of God that actually works against the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of darkness, uh, that those are different yeah, that, that God rules over the world as creator and he rules over as redeemer. And those aren't exactly the same thing. Um, that that we, we need to have a distinction there. Um, I'm going to skip over this because I just want to emphasize this at the very end here. Um, how does the kingdom of God come? Uh, and Nugent's point is that the kingdom of God comes as a gift. In other words, when you look at the kingdom of God coming, it is through the work of God that the kingdom comes. It is not something that human beings achieve. This, this is scandalous. Well, why is it scandalous? Because we, we like to do our part, don't we? I mean, even in terms of the like, look, we made this mess. Now who's going to clean it up? Yeah. It looks like God does, but, but there's got to be something that I can do, right? I got to do, whether it's, whether it's works righteousness or my own, I just coined this recently, or woke righteousness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> either one, trademark. Um, right, both of the, in different ways, it's like, it has to be somehow on something we do, but instead the first point, it, I mean, all through this is, what do we do? We first, we just embrace it. We don't like this because I, I think, because it's passive. It's saying this is God doing this, and we want to be able to, but there's got to be something that I'm doing, something that I'm bringing to this. We embrace the kingdom. We put the kingdom on display in our life, and we verbally proclaim the kingdom. Um, and so we'll talk about these more in detail, but I do want to get in this last, um, this last point. Think about the Gospels. Who has the most trouble embracing the kingdom? The religious leaders. The religious leaders. <laughs> What's that? It's I said Thomas. 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 He's, he's got trouble. 
I mean, isn't it, for the most part, isn't it the people who are themselves trying to work really hard to bring about the kingdom of God. I mean, this is part of why the Pharisees are like, you know, if we keep the law, if we, if we can finally get these sinners and tax collectors on board with keeping the law instead of doing what they're doing, then we can bring about the kingdom of God. We, we will accomplish this in our own power and in our own strength. And so, you know, that's, that's challenging to me because I know that I'm much more like the Pharisees in my own life and background than I am a tax collector or sinner. And so um, it's the people who are trying hard to bring about the kingdom of God through their own effort, people who are working to bring this about, uh, that actually can't just receive it. Right? They can't just say, this is just a sheer act of grace that you receive uh, and then celebrate. I mean, think about the older son in the story of the prodigal son. Um, what can't he do? He just can't let go, right? His father's like, come join the party, right? You're part, you can be part of this. Um, and in fact, this is really interesting. He says, I've been slaving for you all these years in your own house. Right? I mean, I think there are a lot of Christians who are actually trying to slave their way to God's favor, try to slave their way to make the world a better place rather than joining the party. Um, and so maybe that's, Maybe that's another metaphor. Maybe that's another way to think about this. Stop trying to fix the world. Instead, join the party. That, there's a college slogan. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Cut college. Stop trying to fix the world. Go party. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll stop there for today. <laughs>